Welcome to Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. As always, I'll be your host, Lee Greenwood, and I'd like to say welcome to this episode. This week, we're having another sit-down chat. This time, it's with an old friend of mine, Willie Johnston. Willie's based up in Scotland. If you don't know Willie uh, and you're a rope access technician, I'm not sure where you've been hiding. Uh, Willie's been involved in rope access since... The early 1980s so this is another great trip down memory lane lots of stories about back in the old days uh, how it was uh, willie's obviously a uh, orata assessor uh, he assessed me for my original level three so i've got some fond memories of that and um, he's also a auditor as well auditing all around uh, europe and the middle east got some offshore stories and um, some quite heartfelt stories so um have a listen in on this one. Before we crack on into it, if you can uh, follow the podcast, that'd be awesome. If you could share it with your friends, that would be amazing. Um, tell one of your rope tech mates about the podcast. See if they're uh, interested in having to listen to some of these stories, some of these tips, tricks and chats. But anyway, for now, let's crack on with it. Here's Willie. So, uh, hi, Will. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for coming in and uh, having a chat with us. How are you doing today? I'm well, yeah, I'm well. Lee and yourself? I'm doing very well, my friend, very well. Uh, things are a little bit warmer down here in Australia, but we are heading to, uh, into winter, and I think you guys are coming out of it. Uh, yeah, well, we should have been. We should have had our two or three weeks of glorious spring weather, pre-midges, um, but it's just been snow and cold weather uh, right until now. So I think we're just going to, as soon as the weather heats up, the midges will be in and that'll be us into summer. Yeah, as, as is uh, quite familiar for a lot of people who are based up in Scotland. Yeah, those midges have... Uh, Definitely got a reputation. Yeah, they play trouble. They cause you a lot of trouble with your kilt, you know. <laughs> cause you a lot of trouble with your kilt. I tried to avoid uh, avoid that one, but yes, definitely. So I was just, uh, there may be uh, some people in the rope access industry that haven't heard of uh, Willie Johnson, but um, I'm not sure if there are, but I was just going to crack straight in, into it and uh, get you to sort of tell us how you uh, got into this wonderful world we call rope access. Well, it starts probably, the root cause <laughs> starts in the late 70s when I started high school. Um, I was introduced to climbing, canoeing and caving and all that. We had a week's uh, outdoor education course. Uh, we did a bit of caving, we did a bit of canoeing, what have you. And then on the last day, we went to this little disused quarry and uh, we got to climb a simple route and do a little bit of abseiling. And because the instructor had climbed the route initially in his welly boots, Myself and my pal Alfie, we ran back after school and did it in our trainers. And from that moment on, we, we started taking a bit of an interest in climbing. There weren't many climbing opportunities for young kids, you know, young teenagers. Um, but we started going to this local climbing wall. And after a few weeks, months probably, the regular guys, and there were some quite serious guys among them, started, you know, just pointing us in the right direction. And the direction for us as a, as a kid growing up in Lothian, was Lodian Schools Climbing Club, uh, the Tuesday group. And so I got involved with them when I was about 14. That's when I met luminaries such as uh, Alan Forrest, Gordon Bissett, Ali Reid, guys like that. Um, later on came people like uh, Rab Watt. He was the managing director down the track for a good while. He's retired now, I believe. Um, so a lot of us came through that school's system. People like Pete Long. Uh, would be keeping an eye on us. They were involved in the education system. He, he, Pete was a guide, but he was also uh, uh, involved in the education system. He's an outdoor ed teacher. And uh, so a lot of these connections that stood me well later on in life were actually made while I was still at school. 
Then when I kind of hit school leaving age, a job started up in the Northwest Highlands. Uh, Gordon and Ali, they came away first, probably the autumn of 1983. And by the tail end of 1983, just a few weeks before breaking up for Christmas, in fact, just 13 days before breaking up for Christmas, I started on a rock job, just three miles along the road from where I'm sat right now. And uh, from there, um, I mean, it wasn't a good job. It wasn't the kind of job that you would uh, be looking to settle down with. Um, it was very seasonal. It was uh, winter work because we had to keep the roads clear for the uh, tourists. And we were stabilising cliffs. There'd been a serious accident. Um, there'd been a fatal accident inquiry. Uh, a then High Court judge who went on to become uh, a, a law lord, uh, Lord Cullen, who was quite famous. Um, a lot of people in the petrochemical game will, will know of Lord Cullen. Well, anyway, his, one of his earlier um, fatal accident inquiries identified the requirement for the authorities to do something about instability in cliffs. And nobody really had an idea how that was going to play out. There was lots of old school solutions, you know, the old RB22 with a swing ball, the wrecking ball. All sorts of uh, experimental tenders were unleashed. And it was a, a guy who ran a series of small businesses over in Sky who took the initiative uh, with the, the climbing thing and uh, did that for a good few years. Spots of fishing, bits of forestry work in between. Um, and then it kind of, uh, again, as a result of Lord Cullen and his fatal accident, his public inquiry into the Piper Alpha disaster, I got myself offshore with uh, the upman that resulted... Um, from his recommendations to do the remedial works to install sh shutdown valves and what have you. And so that's really how I got, you know, from just a kind of casual abseiling, six or seven months of the year, um, to, you know, working for a raft of companies, probably late 80s, early, you know, early 90s. That's definitely an early start. You were, uh, sounds like there was a load of you. I'd love to see the uh, the photo from the climbing car back in the, back in the late 70s of all of these known faces who uh, are known through the industry, but you're all standing there at like 14, 15. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. If, I mean, uh, yeah. Known all those guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so I mean, people say how long you've been doing this and, you know, I'm sort of past counting the years up. You know, I remember I bought myself a watch when I was 25 years old, when I was 25 years in, and, you know, something else when I was 30 years in. But, you know, I'm 55 now. I left school. I started working when I was 18 in the ropes and I've been doing it pretty much ever since. It's uh, definitely stood you in uh, good stead, which is uh, great to see. So um, so you started on those cliff faces around, uh, as you say, three miles down the road from where you are now. Um, and then you, uh, the, as we all know, a lot of people know the Piper Alpha uh, disaster and then all the recommendations that came out of that. So that took you offshore. So who, who were you sort of working with in those sort of late 80s? Well, the late 80s, I was still pretty much um, resisting the, this errata thing, you know. Um, it was being sold to me, well, if you don't get this errata certificate, you know, you're not going to be able to work. And I thought, oh, well, you know, says who? <laughs> so I kind of had a false start in 1990. Um, Sandy Allen was at Rig Blast at the time. And I was quite optimistic that I would get something there. Um, but the strikes happened. There was a whole load of industrial acts, uh, action that year. So I didn't get away. Um, the following year, 91, there'd been a change of management. And uh, this fella, Pascal, had come across my CV. He'd spoken to a couple of people that knew me. And um, so I, I started working with Rig Blast. They kind of paid me through my offshore courses and stuff like that. So I was kind of loyal. I mean, I, most of the offshore work that I've done, I've, I've worked for a few companies, but the, the vast bulk of it has been, was with Rig Blast out of Aberdeen and did some work out of their Houston office as well. 
Nice. So, uh, so resistance against this Irata thing that had an office in England. That uh, that doesn't sound very Scottish of you, Willie. Well, they were, I don't think the, the registered office was in it. Well, they didn't actually have a registered office and they weren't actually a trade association um, okay. in 1988, in the, in the end of 1988, when people started talking about it. The Irata thing came along proper for me, as I say, in 1991, and uh, Rig Blast had just become a member earlier that year. Um, I suppose it was just people who were on the periphery or were involved in some of that offshore stuff. You know, Gordon Bissett and Alan Forrest were quite early with the offshore stuff. And uh, which is Gordon speculating that this errata thing was going to sort it all out. But then when I started looking into it, what I really, what really caught my eye and what I really liked about it was the standard of the standard approach. You know, that was the thing that I always felt um, that was one of our weaknesses when we worked on the rocks. Very early on, we doing some just looking at some rescue scenarios, you know, uh, we realised that everybody had a diff slightly different setup. You know, nobody was using their equipment in exactly the same way. So it meant that there was an awful lot of variables. So I kind of tried to keep my equipment pretty standard. And then when I started working for these uh, Arata companies, um, I really liked the fact that everybody was using the same kit. You know, the, the way we use it has changed over the years, but we kind of were changing in... Perhaps not in perfect unison, but certainly in harmony. You know, some distance between the pitches, but, you know, we were playing the same melody. We were complementing the same melody, if you like. And so that really started to appeal. And then I realised that, you know, this had become a proper job um, and that perhaps I should maybe focus a bit of time and spend a bit of effort and see if I can't, uh, you know, make my, make, make more of in the, that, that, that way of it um, to see if I couldn't be a part of it. And, you know, it's... It kind of felt, because it was quite young when I got, I got into it, I was always the young kid on the job. Um, there was a few other young kids as well. Um, yeah, so basically what I'm saying is that, um, you know, because I've come from this mindset of being the young guy and I slowly evolved into it to being one of the lads and then one of the kind of minor sort of charge hand type guys, if you like, uh, and then going offshore, I, I kind of expected a similar kind of scenario where there was going to be this squad of real sort of, experienced guys, a core of them at the, at the centre. Because when I started on the rocks, we had guys like Richard McCarty. Um, we had uh, Jim and Dave, um, a couple of uh, Aspen Mountain Guides. So we had a real core of competent people there. Um, even though we considered ourselves fairly competent, we were, we were just kids. These guys were sort of more mature uh, adults and um, they brought a bit more stability and a bit more kind of practical um, nous to a situation uh, where your young guys tend to be a little bit more experimental. They were... You know, we stick to what we know and we, uh, you know, we we take care and we apply some due diligence. So when I got to the offshore thing, I was kind of surprised that I'd been sold it. Good sales tactics, I suppose. <laughs> but I was expecting there to be a kind of core of really experienced guys. And what, of course, start to realise was that there wasn't. This was a, this was a very new industry um, and it was growing all the time. And so it gave you an opportunity to grow with it, although the realisation of that's what was happening early in your career, um, it's only in hindsight that you can look back and you can identify those periods as being, uh, you know, formative and uh, and that you were actually more involved uh, as part of that core kind of centre. Um, it was just it kind of blindsided me. I didn't see it. I didn't see that coming at the time. So I kind of arrived in the offshore, um, looked around and realised that there was no guide in hand, but I'd come from a, a work background that stood me in fairly good stead. And I really liked this concept of a safe working system, uniformity of equipment. And uh, 
you know, so I just uh, shift of emphasis. But um, when I moved to the offshore thing, I kind of found myself growing, growing with the system. Yeah, nice. So, um, so now you've uh, you've stopped resisting against this Arada thing from the late eighties, and now you. How did you? How did you get your ticket? Were you a, a direct entry? Were you grandfathered? How did that all work back then for all the youngsters out there who have got no idea what was going on in the early nineties? Well, one of, one of the questions I often get asked by guys, what's the hardest to rattle level? Must be level three. I say, no, I don't think so. It must be level two then. No, no, no. I think it's level one, you know, because, you you know, our system's designed to bring guys, you know, people off the street with no prior knowledge. Uh, give them what's a pass-fail safety induction, essentially. Uh, get them into a situation where they can maintain control of their own personal kit and they are capable of performing a limited range of tasks under the supervision of a higher grade. And... We embed them with team. Well, they go to work. They get embedded with teams, and you know, and so they, there's a bit of vocational kind of learning on the job takes place. But back in those days, <clears throat> the early errata companies, the the companies were the errata members, but there was no no certification scheme uh, run by the trade association. The, the certification was handled by individual companies. There were a set of uh, agreed principles, errata principles of what the the, um, the training should in, encompass and the principle of independent assessment had already been established. But um, I went in as a direct entry. It was a level one, actually, we called it. Um, I think when a certain manager had jumped from Cannes to the company I was working for, um, to make it not look too similar, they, instead of us being level ones and level twos, and level twos being the higher grade and level ones being the lower grade, we had switched around. The level two was a new start, and the level one was the... The supervisor. So in '92, when the uh, the certification certification scheme was launched, we were all given um, grandfather rights. We were all given queue numbers, and we were given three years to go through the new assessment system and become certificated. So people will look at my Iraq card and it'll say, um, you know, first achieved this in 1995. That's because we'd been grandfathered out before that. So individual companies. So, so one of the, the big downsides of that. Well, there was pluses and there was minuses. Uh, one of the big pluses was that um, you got a lot of training. Uh, the talk amongst the rope techs in those days was, which companies do you have your ticket in with? Because you needed to have a ticket with each company. And one of the problems that that created was it created an environment where the assessor might have assessed you two or three weeks before, uh, maybe two or three times already that year for different companies. And so there was a bit of complacency crept in with, uh, with known people. And, uh, and that took a bit of sorting out. And you know, later years. Also, there was the expense for the companies. You know, they're training these guys up who've already been trained, assessing guys who've already been assessed very often by the same assessor. And for the guys, um, if you were jumping from contract to contract, that was an extra week in Aberdeen uh, where you really could be doing with spending that week at home. So I think the certification scheme was really welcomed by everybody. It was welcomed by the companies and was welcomed by the technicians as well. I mean, of course, a lot of technicians strutting about with the bad attitudes thinking they didn't really need to be um, assessed again. They'd already been assessed. But anyway, we settled down into this system and it's proven to be, I think, pretty robust down the years. Yeah, definitely have to agree with that. As you say, the consistency and, um, you know, you look at a you look at a kit from the early 90s, apart from the devices have changed, you know, we're not on stops and uh, various backup devices, but it's the same sort of concept, you know. Cows tails or lanyards and uh, a descender, some gear for ascending, and uh, but it's the same sort of, pretty much the same setup, which is uh, yeah, 
which is easier to follow. If you took somebody from 95 and put them in a kit today, they'd be able to work it out pretty quick of uh, how things work. So, yeah, and, and it doesn't matter where you travel around the world, you can just jump into a kit and get on with a job, even if, uh, which has worked really well for Arada and for the, the individuals and the companies, definitely. Yeah, I think somebody, you know, you, I listened to your uh, chat with Charles um, recently and uh, you talked about the harness. Uh, what was it? The innovator. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and that really got me thinking a lot because when we started out, we didn't use SRT harnesses initially when we started working on the rocks. We were using uh, Willens harnesses. And people think, well, how could you use a Willens harness for hanging on? Well, there's a technique. Um, and quite a lot of the time when you're working on cliff faces, you know, you you know, you, when you're standing, you're standing around on cliff faces most of the time. You weren't really hanging, hanging in harnesses to move between positions, hanging in harnesses performing certain tasks. But then the traffic would come through the site. So you don't want to be hanging around in a harness. So you got your five minutes to tidy up. You would find somewhere to stand or somewhere where you could rest. Um, so we weren't really hanging in harnesses. Then the, the Petzl SRT harness started creeping in. And that was as a direct result of the developments elsewhere in the rope access scene as it was starting to develop, particularly in the north of England, around about Sheffield, um, Chris Parkin, guys like that, uh, getting involved there. And so they you, they started applying um, this kind of caving idea. I mean, we had equipment that was a bit more appropriate, a bit less kind of on the edge of mountaineering and developments like the development of the stop. I mean, you know, that was a fairly major development. And I would say that was as significant a development for his era as the ID was. Or it's either, um, if you can imagine that, you know, fail safe and stuff like that. The stop didn't really fail to safe. Um, there was a few variables in that equation, but it was a damn sight safer than uh, any other standalone device that was available in the market at the time. Um, so, yeah, the harness then, when I started uh, what we call the uh, kind of mainstream rope access, the whole system was based around that harness. Um, it buckled up like a regular climbing harness. Um, but also had kind of an equipment loop. You could also insert uh, D-shaped melons, so you could adjust the point of balance. You know, your, your cow's tails were all tied around you, like a climbing rope would be tied around you, and the harness was designed for that, to cope with that. And so I think the big shift was when the Yates harness was, I don't know, did Petzl license it or how the Navajo series came about. But that was a bit disappointing in as much as, whilst the harness was certainly a bit more industrial, um, attaching to it. It's never really married up with our system quite well. Um, we use for a long time, we prefer to use trawl harnesses, uh, the trawl rat as it was, but then trawl got bought out and a lot of the lines uh, weren't of interest, a lot of their product lines weren't of interest to the, the new owner. So um, we ended up with um, Navajo style harnesses and pretty much that's what everybody's copied. Um, where I think if we could revisit some of these older uh, designs, um, we had more facility if we could have just taken that, that old design and and given it the same robustness as the uh, as the modern industrial harnesses. You know, I think uh, you know we wouldn't have a big cluster of cow's tails dangling from a male in front of a harness. It would be far more integral to the to the system. Yeah, well, I'd uh, I'd really like to have a couple of. Uh of D's on the front of the harness. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd be keen to go and hang in a Willens harness again. Now, I remember doing that in the mid-90s when I was a kid and uh, doing some abseiling in one of those. And I, I won't say it was a uh, a pleasant, enjoyable experience, but it definitely was an experience. Yeah, I mean, the, the, well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, quite a lot of the people I speak to about uh, about geo work, they, they don't really 
they can't really grasp it. You know, it's not what I call clean stuff. Even a dirty uh, building site is a clean job. Uh, whereas with us, um, well, you know yourself, uh, you uh, spent drafty, windy, wet nights out on geo jobs. You know, yeah, I have uh, with me. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember one with you. Yes, yep, definitely. Yep. And so, so you know the kind of scene. It's dark, it's greedy, it's wet, it's muddy, it's it's pretty horrible. Um, but the harness side of it, back in the early eighties, as back back in the early eighties, you know, it was, you know, there weren't that many modern harnesses. Um, Willen's harness, although it was kind of aging, it was a lot of people were still using them in the climbing scene. But as I say, that's because we came from a kind of climbing angle. Uh, the, the folk who had, were setting the, our system up were climbers and mountain guides. And it was when the guys in the north of England started getting involved. They started using more, um, well, there was an awful lot more caving and potholing going on in that part of the world. So a lot of those techniques and a lot of the devices and methods kind of naturally bled in. And so SRT, single rope technique, was the system that was adopted we just added in a separate rope and a backup device into that. So essentially, you know, we, our system has evolved from single rope technique, caving, single rope technique. Yeah. So um, you're there in the, so what we're in, we're up to sort of the mid nineties now. You've, uh, you've got, you've got your ticket. You've officially, you've recertified because um, that's what it says on your card with your really low IRATA number that confuses people. And, um, and then, well, I know that by sort of, the late nineties, you were definitely an Arata assessor because I had the pleasure of uh, of being assessed by you uh, back in those days. So, how did that uh, going from being a level three to become an assessor? What was the process involved for that one? Well, originally, I had no real interest in becoming. A, you know, assessors were the enemy. You know, you need a bit of a bad attitude, uh, or you need to be able to stand up for yourself. You know, finding that balance, striking that balance of uh, standing up for yourself without being confrontational. Um, so I've, I always really respect a, a bit of attitude in a level three, um, simply because quite often you can find yourself in working environments where, you know, you get bullied by the client, pushed around, we want you to do this, we want you to do that. You know, maybe one of the client's guys decides that, you know, we're hiring you and I'll tell you what you're going to do and I'll tell you how many guys you're going to have on that and how many guys you're going to have there. So you need to be able to counter that to keep everybody safe and keep everybody on board including difficult clients. So I started getting involved in a bit of training um, just simply because I was the guy who was available. The boss knew I could do the rope stuff well enough to, to train. And I had to, I had to learn, but we had a, you know, the peer group, we were kind of learning off each other. Uh, so I started doing a bit of training and then a couple of guys that I knew got made up as, uh, you know, were invited to become assessors. So originally what seemed to happen, I don't know, but uh, how, how it struck me was that um, there were the, originally there were the core assessors. And then in 1992, the, um, they decided they needed new assessors. So the, I think a bunch of guys just decided to make themselves assessors. And that's how it seemed to us in, out in the field. So uh, again, there was that little bit of bad attitude came into play. And um, 95, I, start my own business. Um, I was still doing a bit of training for, for Big Blast. I was still doing a bit of training for Pasco. And um, eventually what happened was after I got involved with Arata, when we became an Arata member, our company, my, my company, um, I just kind of put my name forward and it was it banded around for a couple of years. Um, and then eventually I was invited, you know, on a, on a course 
And in those days, it was kind of simple. It wasn't the, the formal course we, we have now, but it, there was a structure to it. There, there was a formal side to it. It wasn't just a gimme, you know. And that involved doing a day on the ropes, um, being investigated by a couple of established assessors, and then performing an assessment. And it was do or die. And, uh, and that was actually a really, really valuable lesson for me. And I think actually becoming an assessor was the, the day that so much changed. Uh, the guy who was evaluating me was Sandy Allen. And uh, we had quite a bit of a laugh, you know. Oh, I remember Alan saying to him, Alan Forrest saying to him, oh, you want to put Willie on the ropes? <clears throat> I don't think I was supposed to hear this conversation, but it went along the lines of, Willie will scare you. We should spend our time doing assessments. So that's what we did. And Sandy is really quite astute, you know. Um, we'd done the assessment, uh, the assessor's assessment. And at the end of it, you know, he said, well, you know, obviously, he said, you know, you're technically very competent, you know, you're quite good, you're quite observant, you know, you're diligent, you know, you know, you really, I thought, well, this is all sounding really good here. And then he said, he said, but your problem is that you kind of try to make every, you, you expect everybody to, you know, to, to be created in your own image, you know, um, and he gave me some hard truths, you know, he said, this is a, a safe working system. This isn't a hero system. Uh, this is a system whereby you walk in, um, in off the street and you get absorbed into the the collective consciousness of the uh, safe working method and safe working system. So you've got to not decide what the standard is. You, you've got to identify what the standard is. Don't make it up for yourself. Don't impose too much of your own, your own ideals into this. You have to, you're assessing for the trade association. So you have to tr assess to the, the trade association standards. And that was his worry about me. But he gave me a buy on that, and I took that on board. And really, to this day, that's the, you know, when I'm out there assessing, that's the one thing I always bear in mind. I've got Sandy's, Sandy's words are still kind of bouncing around my head. So, yeah, um, 1998, I became an assessor. Fantastic. Yeah, that's the uh, same old name seems to be coming up. Um, I've been uh, lucky enough to uh, have a few beers with Alan over the years and yourself, and lucky enough to be uh, assessed by both of you early on in my career. Um, I think it wasn't that long after that. Um, yeah, it would have been a year after that, 99. I had you come in, um, travel down to Charlie Cooper's place and assess me for my, for my level three. And there's, uh, there's a few uh, words of wisdom that you gave me uh, once I passed uh, my course. I think it was, um, you've now, you've passed the test, now you need to become a level three. Um, and that's still, I still pass that on to, um, level threes when I'm assessing them, you know, that's the, uh, yeah, you've, you've jumped through the hoops, you've done the tricks. Now you need to become a supervisor. You now need to be able to run those jobs. Yeah. I had that, I had that conversation with a guy on Friday there just passed. I'd failed him a few weeks before. Really good guy. Um, had all the tricks off Pat, um, quite organized, but just allowed himself to get a bit too flustered, you know, simple things. It's the old adage. You give folk a bit of, give them enough rope, you know? And, uh, and he just didn't make the grade. But I could see that there was an awful lot of promise there. Um, the guy was going to be out of his level two in five or six weeks. So I said, well, you know, the thing to do is to come back. So he did, he came back on Friday and had a far more assured performance. You know, I think he might just got his, he got his ducks in a row. He kind of understood more what we were after. But but on, on passing, I had the same conversation with him. And what was really useful was that uh, the other guys who were there and uh, the trainer, who's a, an old colleague, they explained, no, 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 there, there's, a, there's a minimum three trip um, 
you know, mentoring and shadowing system involved for company supervision. So he was going to have to do a couple of supervisor courses and he was going to have to go out and do a few trips as a, you know, as an apprentice level three or an apprentice supervisor, should we say. Um, and so I felt quite confident that, you know, he wouldn't be getting thrown in at the deep end. He would be getting eased in, which I think that's the important thing. I mean, I always say to guys, you know, the level one comes in off the street. What's a level one? A level one's a guy that doesn't really know anything. Uh, with a level one certificate. A level two is a level one with a level two certificate, and it's the same for a level three. And reassessments are just uh, make, maintaining uh, core skills. But there's a big learning curve <clears throat> at the beginning of each activity. I mean, if I go back to that very, very first job as well, something that really bears a mention there. My first day on the job, I was taken to this, uh, I call him this old guy. He's probably younger. Well, yeah, he would be about 10 years younger than I am now. A crofter from... from Sky, people think that the job was pretty agricultural, and it was. But my induction on that, my site induction, uh, risk assessment, method statement meeting with this old guy, you know, there was nothing written down, but he sat me down and he talked me through the whole job. So there was about 30 guys on ropes and about another 25, 30 guys on the road um, on various bits of plant. And there was blasting, there was lots of big machines. It was a dangerous, dangerous site. But this old guy sat down and explained how the whole thing worked. And I realised from that that this just wasn't some kind of random kind of activity that these guys were involved in. You know, there was, wasn't was a lot of free-form uh, uh, work interpretations going on down there. It was actually regimented, you know, where people stood, what people did at certain times. It was all thought out. It was all choreographed. And, of course, his famous last words to me, everybody goes home in one piece. And that, again, that's... That really stuck with me. That stuck with me through my my my, uh, my career as well. That that work is organised and work has to be organised if everybody's to go home in one piece. And that doesn't matter what you're doing, if you're doing rope access or if you're you know a mechanic or you know any kind of work working in a kitchen, you know a cleaner, any kind of work. They've all got their own hazards. They've all got their own uh, dangers. So it's about coordinating with people and understanding what's going on. And I mean the health and safety thing. I've had a few real shocks lately. Um, my daughter's elder brother um, had a serious incident there on a fishing boat just a couple of weeks ago. Um, not of his own making, but when he described the situation to me, it was one of those when they changed the normal standard operating procedure briefly, and that little change that they'd made had uh, caused uh, an issue with um, a bit of equipment involved in the winch that nobody was expecting. It nearly cut the wee guy and his deck crewmate in half. And they had to be, uh, fortunately, there's there's no real serious damage. But they had to be airlifted from out in the Atlantic, south of Barrahead, out to, uh, by helicopter to Glasgow, two, two individual helicopters to rescue them. So these kind of things kind of stick in your head. And even though I had a fairly humble start, I was really grateful and fortunate that the guys that I was working, that I was working with initially kind of looked after me. And they were really competent guys, and they managed to impart those those work ethics, not the getting being busy work ethic, but the, the more important work ethic of uh, planning your work, thinking it through. So even these old crofter guys back in the early 80s, um, they had all that thought out. It wasn't just a random act. And the only difference between the quality of that uh, safety induction meeting and the modern one is that in the modern one, it's all recorded and there's more general health and safety involved as well. Yeah, definitely, yeah, it's just written down, but... Um... 
is the main difference. But if everybody needs to be on the same page, don't they? And it sounds like back in those early jobs, uh, everybody knew where to stand when they needed to stand there to uh, to keep out of harm's way because uh, we all know that geo jobs are uh, a uh, an interesting, unpredictable location, you know, on the ones that I've worked on. You mentioned uh, I worked with you uh, many years ago up in Scotland on a project, which was, uh, yeah, still a fond memory, freezing to death on the side of a cliff face. Yeah, one of the things, you know, I, I was just, of course, I was just a young kid, you know, uh, from the town. And here I was in an alien environment. The, you know, the work was a bit terrifying, you know, like going over the top in the Somme, you know, just missiles flying everywhere, you know, all a bit sort of chaotic. I'd love to say we were real organised, but we weren't. But one of the funny things there in that induction, he pointed to the, the old, old Angie, pointed to this guy and he said, see that guy there, this GCB driver. He said, never turn your back on that man. Never turn your back on that man. I said, why? He said, because if you turn your back on him, he'll kill you. So, of course, I thought he was some kind of knife man or some kind of psychopath or something like that. It, took, it actually took a few months for the penny to drop. But what he meant was that he doesn't look behind him when he's moving the machine. So you have to keep your eye on him. It's your responsibility to yourself because he's not very good at looking out for other people. So it's your responsibility to be always standing in his line of sight. You know, all that, that type of thing. So that was quite funny. I thought that he was some kind of psycho. And, you know, later on when I moved house... Um, I was getting a lift backwards and forwards to work with this guy. So I was always a bit cagey and extremely polite. <laughs> but it turned out that it was just uh, what, he, what he meant was just be careful when he's in the plant because he's, you know, he gets too busy and he doesn't pay much heed to what's going on around about him. Good advice. But yeah, maybe he was a, uh, a knife man as well. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so you've now got your, your assessors. You're now cruising around um, terrifying all these poor level ones. Um, because uh, your words, uh, you're now the enemy, I think, is that the, the words? Uh, that's right, yeah, that's right. So you're now the enemy, or uh, I'm not sure if it was yourself or um, or Alan who said you were um, you were uh, poachers termed gamekeepers, I think was a term that I heard from one of you guys many years ago. Yeah, that would be that would be a good analogy. You know, it's one of the things I like enjoy about auditing. Yep. Um, the, you know, the, I spent a lot of time being audited myself. And um, so when you had the heads up, as we often used to get the heads up, um, I now understand, obviously, with a bit more maturity that we weren't really kidding anybody. But I don't think there was anything wrong, really. We were just making sure that there was nothing wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, so poacher turned gamekeepers are, is a good analogy. Yeah, nice. So uh, where did it take you from the late 90s? You know, I, I sort of ran off to... Australia, um, you were obviously staying in, uh, still in Scotland. Um, I know we crossed paths a few times at meetings, but where's the journey taking you over the last sort of 20 years? Well, I went bust in 2000. Um, company went bust in 2000. Kind of wandered away. I spent three months in my bed. I've, uh, I'd already left before then, so it wasn't anything to do with that job that I was on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, um, I was out in Oz uh, doing an assessment just a couple of weeks before you came out. I was down there staying at Carl Carl Beach. Yep. Um, and yeah, uh, I was out there for a week or so. Just before, so I remember you heading out to Australia. So I went bust and uh, kind of hummed and hawed. What was I going to do? And I picked up the phone and I went back offshore. And of course, it, for me, going bust was a big personal disaster. It still kind of affects a lot of the way I, I look at things. Um, and it changed my kind of... Uh, 
It changed my habits, really. And it felt like a big disaster, but it's only, you know, I actually started to realise that I, I, I learned a few core skills. Um, I learned quite a lot when, I, you know, working for myself. I mean, I'd lost, what, 15 years worth of earnings, I reckoned. Um, and that was my disposable income years. You know, I went from losing 15 years of earnings to uh, straight into the teeth of the gale where I was, um, where I had proper outgoings now. I had family and, and all the expenses that that incurs. So I'm uh, back offshore for a few years, um, did some pretty interesting jobs. Then I started getting a bit sick of, uh, well, actually it was the, I'd separated and it was the custody issue with my daughter. Um, I had been working offshore and having my daughter for a week of my leave. But then uh, the ex, she was moving back to Lewis. And at that time, there was no Sunday sailings on the ferry. Um, you'd have to hire a chaperone to to utilise the flight. There was They had started a Sunday flight, but uh, so there was no weekend visits. So the, the partner's, ex-partner's solution was to uh, have me have the, the daughter for all the school holidays which was great because that was birthday and Christmas and all that kind of stuff, but also wasn't really going to be that compatible with working offshore because in the offshore game in, uh, in particular, I'm sure in many industries, it's the school holiday period is the really difficult period to um, to cover because there's a lot of pressure for staff wanting holidays and here was Will uh, needing the whole time off. So I ran away to America. I ran away to the States uh, for a rig blast and uh, did a job down in Morgan City. I'd been out there before. I'd, I'd done a job down in the, the Gulf of Mexico, out of Mexico, out of Suerte del Carmen. And I'd been down there for a good few months. But this time I, I did a quick gig out there working in uh, McDermott's yard in Morgan City, a free and gold. And uh, that was kind of good. And I had to come back because my passport was running out. Um, so I got back and my, my passport had actually expired the night I, I arrived back. But because of the time zone, the guys at the border were, were quite sympathetic. Uh, so I ran away to the States and I didn't want to jack my job. I didn't want to resign. I had some service in by this time. But I just thought I'll cower at home. And I cowered at home. Summer holidays were approaching and I was going to be having daughter for six weeks. And I kept expecting the phone to ring and I was going to have to give them the news. But the phone didn't ring. Because what had happened in that interim period, um, the Gulf War was on. Ian Summers, um, who was in the TA, he'd been he he was the the boss by this stage, um, and at Red Blast, he'd been called up, and something happened there, um, and he was replaced, and if, so the people in the office didn't really know I was on the books, so I kind of kept that quiet, and then people were saying, you know, you could come and do an assessment for us. I said, well, I've got the daughter, and they said, well, look, we've got cranes and pencils and. And the, you know we're used to assessors turning up with their kids, so just bring your daughter along. And so I started doing a bit more assessing. And assessing had never occurred to me as something that you, you could actually make money at. Um, but of course, by this time, it was instead of having two or three assessments a year, or four or five assessments a year, where quite often you could struggle to make your numbers, um, now there was assessments every week. Um, and then five or six weeks later, um, actually, I think the summer holidays were over. Rig Blast phoned and asked if I could do an assessment. I said, well, technically I can't do an assessment for you because I still work for you. No, you don't. I said, you better phone Karen Thompson. So then that put the cat amongst the pigeons um, because, you know, for contractual reasons and whatnot. But it was, you know, it was a mutual, we had a mutual understanding and uh, we parted on, on good terms, you know. And for the next couple of years, I focused on being available for the, the daughter, um, 
and I work my, my my work life life revolved around that. So much less physical work and much more assessment and stuff. Um, and then that kind of culminated in me realizing that I just wasn't making enough money. And so from there, I went out to Egypt. Nice. What were you doing out there? Uh, international agony uncle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All you in the North Sea of dealing with all of the broken hearts, you've taken the skills internationally, yeah? Yeah. Well, it's a different set of problems. It's a different set of problems. You know, um, I was working with a lot of Asian guys. And so the issue with the Asian guys was that they were much less likely to be hiding in the tea hut. The problem I found with these guys was I had to actually physically drag them down off the job and say to them, you know, you, you, I really appreciate you're working really hard, guys, but you have to take the breaks. And I need you to be, they were, they were doing six-week stints with us. They were coming from uh, a company in Dubai and coming from Margarmi in Dubai. Uh, the, the company that I, well, Alan Forrest, I, I was looking for a trip offshore or two. And I'd uh, organised uh, a couple of possibilities. And Alan Forrest happened to mention, he said, there's a company out in, well, BP are out in uh, Egypt and they're, they're needing somebody to cast their eye over a few documents. And they're looking to set up a rope access thing. And that's pretty much all the information I had. So I got um, taken out there by BP. Oh, I had a bit of time, looked at the job, looked at what they needed to do. I realised that this wasn't a couple of weeks job. They were looking for somebody to run this. And uh, so I kind of uh, agreed to do it. They placed me with the Egyptian contractor, who turned out to be, who are now an Arata member, IMW. And they turned out to be quite a good company. And... Um, so I was kind of placed by BP, working with uh, an Egyptian, uh, predominantly diving contractor, but subsequently branched out into rope access. And uh, yeah, I mean, the difference was in the North Sea, it was lots of moaning guys, you know, lots of first world problems. Uh, out in Egypt, it was it was basically me with my, my gods of uh, Asian guys, Nepalis, uh, Indian guys, Bangladeshi guys, initially. And then as the contract expanded and the work uh, became more involved, we started getting a bunch of Lithuanian guys coming. Um, I thought Lino was emailing me to ask to come out to Lithuania to do an assessment until I realised that I was copied in. And, uh, and this was a conversation between these guys and uh, my boss about recruiting a few of them to, to come down and uh, fill some of the roles for us on that particular job. I really enjoyed my time in Egypt. It was a real eye-opener. I really enjoyed working with the Asian guys uh, because, as I say, the problems were different. Um, and it was like a breath of fresh air. They weren't moaning about the, the usual sorts of things that the, the, the British guys in particular moan about. And uh, so it presented a new set of challenges for me. Um, language, uh, everybody's got English, but they've got basic English. So communication and the importance of communication and making sure that people actually understood um, because a lot of these guys, you know, they, they're just going to nod and agree, but they haven't really fully understood what you're asking them to do. So I realised that I had to start asking people two or three different ways, choose my words carefully until I was pretty confident the guys understood. And I really enjoyed working with them. As I say, the big problem for these guys was they were so keen to please sometimes that they, they worked, uh, they, they wouldn't take breaks. And so when I used to go out and do my little site audits, I... Uh, I would have to, well, I used to be hiding in the the plant to try and catch them out. Uh, not skiving, you know, and say, right, you guys were supposed to be in tea break half an hour ago. Why aren't you in your tea break? So that's a kind of 
must have been some pretty big plant if you were trying to hide in between it, really, because <laughs> you're not the shortest man in rope access, definitely. No, no. I'm not the tallest either. Nah. So, yeah, so that takes us up till about 2011, 2012. So, when Carl, Carl Rabi had come out. Now, I'd done a job um, for a company quite local to here a few years before, two, two or three years before. It was one of these disaster, audit disasters. 60% of the items were NCEs. Um, could I come and have a look? So we went, I went down, had a look, realised what the problem was, um, sat down with the guy, looked at what he was doing, and we just rationalised everything, you know, instead of having a set of procedures and trying to follow them, you know. So what is it you actually do and how, how do you actually go about it? And then we drafted a set of procedures around about that. And uh, when Paul Ramsden came to complete the audit, I'd actually intervened. I said, well, you know, for a stage two audit, I said, you really need some evidence. So we've just put this system together. So why don't you give us an extra three months to generate some uh, some site evidence or what have you to show that the system works and uh, look at completing this, the second part of the audit process then? Yep, okay, that's a good idea. And when it came up, you know, we'd gone from a 60% fail to 100% pass. So he asked me if I wanted if I'd consider getting involved with the audit team. But nothing came of that. So Carl, a few years later, said, well, look, that's two audits. I've just done the probationary and the full here, and uh, you really understand this. Have you thought about becoming part of the audit team? So they explained the previous history. So he said, well, I'll mention that. I'll mention that to Chebby. So I was at an Iraq meeting shortly afterwards, and Chebby made a point saying, yep, yeah, okay, next on the list, it's going to be a year to 18 months. So I thought, that's fine. So I was, wasn't was in any real hurry to get involved in doing anything um, too committing at that point. I just spent a few years out in the desert. Um, so I was going to take a few weeks to uh, find my feet again. And I was off to do an assessment somewhere and I was sitting in an airport, Edinburgh airport, and I was I picked up my phone to turn it off because they were calling my flight. And Chebby phoned, what are you doing next week? Well, nothing that I can't move. Why? Well, we're, we're running a ISO lead auditors course for all the auditors and we've got a vacancy has become available in Scotland, Jim Grosset had resigned from the audit team. Um, we, you know, originally they looked at me as being a kind of Middle East auditor, um, but then I filled I, I filled Jim's uh, shoes when, when Jim retired. And so instead of having to wait a year, 18 months, five days later, I was uh, sitting down in uh, total access um, start, at the start of the audit process. Nice. So there you are, gone from pushing back against the system back in the late 80s, saying what's this Irada thing, and now you're uh, an assessor and an auditor. Yeah, pushing from the other side. <laughs> and then see it. Um, poacher turned gamekeeper, excellent. And uh, and so... Uh, poacher turned estate manager. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. So then, uh, is that sort of what you're doing these days? Are you yeah. running around, auditing, assessing? Auditing, assessing. Are you still on the ropes? What are you doing? Uh, I've not really done anything on the ropes for a while. Um Obviously, the current situation doesn't help. Yep. Uh, so, just various bits and pieces. Um, got a little bit of consultation that I do. I'm still involved with, with a couple of companies. Um, just keeping an eye on things uh, when, when asked to. Um, sometimes that might just be getting copied in on on emails, uh, threads, just to just to cast an eye over it and just to comment back um, if I think anything's untoward or whatnot. So, yeah, that that kind of keeps me busy. Um, auditing has kept me really busy. I've really enjoyed it. It's um, 
with the Brexit thing happening, I didn't really know what was going to happen um, with, you know, it was all still very much up in the air. So round about mid-2019, oh, uh, I started to get a bit worried about what might happen. It's a bit like going out to Egypt. That was uh, you know, heralded by the financial crash. I thought I better get involved with something um, big work-wise. So I thought, well, I'm, just, I'm going to just have to start accepting more work. Um, fill up the diary and of course as you know yourself when you start accepting that kind of work it takes a while for it to build up but it culminated in a pretty busy beginning to 2020 so of course there I am Hogmanay, that's New Year's Eve for people who don't live in Scotland I was sitting in my house 10 o'clock now at midnight the neighbours we just gather outside and uh, the the neighbour across the road he'll get the bagpipes out and he'll pipe in the new year and we just one of the neighbours sets up a table our street lights go off at midnight so we have a we rig a lamp and I just kind of wanted to go to my bed I thought mm, have a couple of beers and then go to bed but I thought no I should perhaps wait go at midnight and uh, have a couple have a beer and just once I've done the pleasantries and disappear off to my bed so I thought I'll put the TV on so I put the TV on for the news news at 10 and that's when I heard that there was a uh, there was a SARS type virus on the loose in China, and I travelled through SARS, and I travelled through MERS. I was travelling. I was travelling to and from the US when the SARS outbreak happened. I was travelling to and from the Middle East, or actually, it was just after I'd finished in the Middle East. But I was starting to do out to the Middle East on audits and what have you. Um, so I was doing a lot of travelling then. So I knew exactly what that meant, and I knew we dodged the pandemic bullets with both SARS-1 and MERS, um, they were contained. They, they didn't get too far, but this one, it seemed that this one may have had the opportunity. So I kind of figured that this is going to be it. And sure enough, um, watch it develop. I mean, I've been playing the social distancing game since the 6th of, April, the 6th of January last year, and I did 30 flights and lots of jobs right up until the 12th. It was the 12th of March I got back from Seville. Um, my job for the following week was cancelled in Norway because they'd closed their borders. So I'd been really, really pretty busy. And of course, the upshot of that meant that I'd earned a bit more money than normal. I had been planning for a, a bit of a dearth of work that might have come about because of Brexit. And in actual fact, I'd found myself, unusually for me, um, instead of finding myself skint, you know, without the bus fare home. Uh, late at night, <laughs> I was, uh, I found myself in a position where, you know, I had the means, you know, to weather the storm. So the auditing has been really good, good, good to me and it's kept it pretty busy. Um, who knows where it'll go from here, but I've, I've got some audit training later on today. So um, and at 10 o'clock, so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that and see how the new system's going to pan out. So I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Yeah, a few things are changing at the, uh, with the other, other stuff be all coming in this year which will be good um that's uh that's pretty awesome so it looks like you you planned for some quiet time and then it turned up for a completely different reason yeah yeah, yeah. so that sort of brings us up to date so i think that nicely brings me on to my next question in that we'll call it 30 something odd year career of rope access this little hobby that turned into a real man's job um what would you say is the best job or jobs i won't restrict you to one because i'm sure there's a few What's the best job you've worked on and why was it the best job? Oh, that'd be really hard to pick one job. I like jobs where the <clears throat> the harmony, there's good humour 
know, good crack on the job and everybody's working well and happy. The, the kind of jobs that you would rather be at the job. There's more fun happening at the job than there is in your own personal life. Those are the jobs that I, that I really like. Um, to pick one, I don't think I could pick one. I could pick a couple. Um, yeah, go for a couple. Yeah, at the Elgin PUQ hookup. Um, we went out there for six months and uh, because of a cock-up in the design of the self um, pile self-swage system that this rig had built onto itself, the job ended up lasting 18 months. So that was a good job because it was kind of like a Highland job. You know, it was a company over in Easter Ross um, who were based then at the MIG yard. They had won the, the hookup contract. So it was, a, it was more of a kind of Highland contract. Quite often when you went out to a lot of these jobs, it would maybe be a Middlesbrough contract because the core of the management were, were from Middlesbrough, or maybe Newcastle uh, or Aberdeen sometimes. But this was a kind of rare job and it was a kind of Highland job. So I, I really enjoyed that job. And also I was, I was a different guy. It was the first big job I'd been involved in when I'd, um, after I'd gone bust. And I started, and I realised, you know, I, here I was, I was no longer in a supervisor's position. I was in a kind of coordinator's position. And uh, I was able to bring a lot of the skills I'd learned working for myself to the fore, um, you know, to, to benefit the company and uh, therefore the guys and ultimately myself and, uh, you know, the company that I worked for. So, so that was a good job. Um, did a job for Cannes out in Paris, um, mainly all aid climbing. That was a good job. Yeah, I've, I've done I've done lots and lots of good jobs. I've I've had many many more good jobs and I've had bad jobs. So I I think it'd be difficult to pick one out. Um, and right back in the early 1980s, you know, the some of those jobs were pretty good. Maybe not the the first job was pretty big, and I, you know, and it did took me a bit of time to find my feet. You know. Um, I wasn't as kind of ducked to water as some of the other guys were. I was a bit of a slower developer. But then I kind of found my, I did a, a little job with Gordon Bissett and a girl along the road there, um, Elaine McCaskill. Um, we did some putting up telltales, a little uh, flying squad um, that we did actually during the, 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 the tourist season. Um, and we were just driving around. The local geologists had, working for the council had identified some suspect uh, joints and some rock features, and we went along and stuck these little telltales on them so that if there's any movement, you know, the engineers could come along and with the binoculars, they could look up and they could monitor movement and maybe get one of us in to actually, you know, take a measurement if they figured something had actually shifted. So that was a great job. That was uh, that was a job where we just travelled about the, the, the trunk roads in the Highlands, uh, three, the three of us, putting up uh, telltales, roadside cliffs with a bunch of guys doing the... Uh, the, the traffic control for us. So I think that was a particularly good job because that's when I kind of started finding my feet and started coming out my shell a bit. Yeah, nice. It sounds like you, uh, you're you making similar noises to a lot of other people who I've chatted to. It's more about the the good crack on the job, the, the guys that you're working with. And as you say, um, the job's more fun than your everyday life. Um, that seems to be um, something that I keep hearing over and over again with chatting to all these different people. It's something I try to build into my assessments. I mean, not everybody appreciates humour. You've got to be kind of careful of it. But I think what I like to do initially is to completely disarm disarm my guys. I mean, you'll know that a lot of guys put pressure on themselves. Quite often, it's the, the, they write more into the script um, than is necessary. You know, they, they, they come up with stuff in their own minds. Oh, I'm not doing this right or I'm not doing that right. You know, and then they start panicking and then, you know, they don't take care of the basics, you know. 
So I like to get my guys, break them and make them, as the, as the army used to say. But I break them down with a bit of humour and um, you know, try and get a bit of a laugh going, give them a bit of a brief, talk them down and then have a bit of fun. You know, and I try and contrive the assessments so that I'm getting the best out of the guys. You know, I, I don't want to have big long lunch breaks and all that kind of stuff. You know, get them there, get them through it, and, and then we can, uh, you know, once we do that, then we're, you know, I, I find I get a pretty good performance out of the guys. Um, and again, it's you just taking that, ner- be nervous, but focus that nervousness, you know, in a constructive uh, way. Don't don't use it to uh, allow things to get out of control. And it, it's the same on jobs. Um, just because we're all having a laugh, it, it doesn't mean that we're not taking the job absolutely seriously. Um, we can take the job absolutely seriously and and still enjoy being there, you know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I think that nicely brings me on to my favourite question. Um, I'm going to get the DeLorean for you. We're going to jump in that and we're going to head back to those early 80s when you're swinging around on that cliff face in your Willens harness. Um, what piece of advice would... Uh, Willie, from today, give that young pup, punk who's uh, 18 years old about I don't know. The I, 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 I don't know that I'd have much to tell my 18-year-old self. I think you'd have to move forward in time. It would be my 30-year-old self, you know. Um, I was involved in an industrial accident as uh, I, was a, I was a foreman, you know. I wasn't uh, a rope guy. And I think the, the thing I would say to myself... Well, I mean, my own root cause analysis, I mean, I, I can't help but blame myself. I mean, it was me. I'd only been on the job half an hour and I'm still getting the job handed over to myself. But if I could go back in time, I would have left the rope access guys um, to their own devices and gone and checked out the other guys that I had because I had three rope access teams and two, we can't really call them deck guys because one lot were working out of a cherry picker and the other lot were working out of a barge in the stride dock. And we had a lot of plant and equipment involved in that job. But I had a guy, um, a forklift driver, managed to run himself over with his own forklift. Kind of crazy story, but, you know, really, if I had prioritised the people that I didn't know, I didn't know how they worked, um, you know, perhaps that accident wouldn't have happened. It actually had a happy ending, but it took a long time. There was a little bit of PSD involved. I think, you know, an important message is, yeah, we tend to kind of blow smoke up our own asses, really, and the importance of our job. But I think, well, we often lose sight that, you know, um, of the fact that our our, our people are quite competent, you know, our, our method of work is robust. Um, I should, I, I kind of, it was my own arrogance. I prioritised the rope access guys over my deck guys. And really, those were the guys I should have gone and seen first because that's where the mavericks were. That's where the poor work practices were. And I'd even spotted that, um, but by the time I'd spotted it, it was too late, you know. Um, it involved, you know, it was quite difficult. I got a commendation from the fire department, uh, from the fire brigade, um, for my uh, stopping the Maverick uh, lift, um, which would have undoubtedly caused the guy more injury. And uh, But doing the right thing still didn't feel like doing the right thing at the time, even when the... Um, the, the fire guy who turned two with the jacks with the lifting squad, I basically said, you know, you saved that guy's life. We don't know if your guy's going to live or not, but there's no way to live lived if they tried that lift and you stopped that. And then, as they say, stuff got real about an hour 
two hours later, there I am. I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm being investigated. The whole company, the company's being investigated. I'm in there with the um, the health and safety people and the police. You know, if you can imagine a Sasquatch in a policeman's uniform. I don't know where they got this guy, but he was bigger than the biggest Polynesian I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, just a monster policeman, tiny little woman. Um, really kind of difficult situation. And of course, I was being treated as a witness because they uh, they acknowledged that there had been no handover um, documented. I was being I was having the site handed over to me when this happened, and I was involved in that court case. It kept me abreast of what was happening. And that court case lasted for five years. Um, they, they sent a guy, uh, an HSE lawyer, over from uh, Aberdeen to debrief me. And uh, no, still ultimately, yeah, I can see what happened. I can see why the fines were handed out the way they were. And, but I still think ultimately it came, came down to me. So if I could go back in time, it would be when I was 30, just before I started my own company. And uh, I would have said to myself, don't be so arrogant. You know, it's, yeah, rote work is dangerous, but we have a good, robust system. It's the work that's going on around about or in concert or in conjunction with the rote work that can, can quite often be overlooked. So I would definitely be saying to myself, be less arrogant and cast your eyes wider. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's some great advice. You know, everybody looks at rope access and thinks and, assumes it's dangerous because of what we do but you kept coming back to that we have a robust system yeah. you know we have these systems in place and it's uh, the other things that are going on around us that can potentially cause the problems which uh which has proved the case uh, on a few occasions for rope access technicians out there working yeah i mean pe- people often say to me there's a lot of health and safety in your job and i say well no there's no health and safety in my job there's just the system and if you follow the system and it's real easy to do it's really easy to get into this way of working where you, you use the system, you use the body fact that there's mo- there's multiple sets of eyes in a job, you coordinate the team, you know. And as Frank Zappa's famous quote, it's, it's like water, it makes its own sauce. So if we apply the system and we, and we use the system the way it's supposed to be used, you know, hopefully um, we should manage to get through our jobs and our work, um, keeping everybody safe. That's the plan. Definitely. 100%. Um, I do actually have one more question for you, which uh, I didn't brief you on beforehand. Um, and you can blame uh, Charlie Cooper for this one. You're going you're gonna to have to tell us a story of uh, him working with Charles and, and being terrified when he dropped off some tools next to him. Well, the, 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 <laughs> there's actually two parts to that story. So you got the second part from, uh, um, from Charles. I actually saw Donnie last weekend. Uh, not not this weekend past, but the weekend before. Bumped into him. Haven't seen him for a while. Uh, so Donnie Gillis, that's, uh, that's Tarzan's name. Uh, the won't go into the reasons behind the name, but anyway, he's, he's quite a big intimidating guy. Did you meet him at all? I it, it rings a bell yeah. when I came up and was working with you. Yeah, I I remember there just being you know I was a tiny scrawny climber in the nineties, so. Um, Anybody up in Scotland was big and terrifying to me. So, so Donny was—I I can't remember if he did a level one, um, but he was our kind of big plant driller blaster. He, he's a blast blaster, blast designer, quarry manager. He's just retired, actually. He was working as quarry manager over at Kishon. They've just uh, the company that he works for in partnership with another company. They've just become a—they've they, just reopened up the the dry dock over there which is where the Ninian Central was uh, jacket was built. 
in the 1970s in the, the Maureen, Maureen Alpha. Um, she was built there in the early 80s. But anyway, Donnie McTarsey, you know, he's quite an intimidating guy. And uh, I mean, he's, he's huge, big, burly, robust. So Donnie had been asking, he'd been trying to fix this this drill rig. This was a, yeah, a big drill rig mounted on a track, track uh, tracks, uh, Atlas Copco uh, 404, I think it was. A uh, big 750 CFM compressor that was towing around the place. So anyway, the, the little engine, the little motor that, that, that runs it, the, the fins in that were needing to be rebuilt. But to get into it, you need some fairly big clobber. So he'd been asking for a, a spanner, and Charles had produced a spanner. And uh, Tarzan said, no, not a spanner like that, a spanner like this. So a kind of crocodile Dundee moment, you know, and he produced the big steel hammer, which is the one that you use to to break the, the, the four-inch steel string. So it's a monster hammer. So that was kind of funny, you know, that moment. It was a bit like the Crocodile Dundee scene where the guy pulls a knife and uh, Dundee pulls his own, that's not a knife, you know. <clears throat> and that's what that's what Tarsi said to, to, to Charles. That's not a spanner. This is a spanner. You know? And, uh, yeah. That was good. Good job. That's when I first met Charles. We uh, acquaintance was supposed to be the subcontractor, and I was supposed to be the sub subcontractor. But our mutual acquaintance didn't uh, produce any goods or documents. So Charles got in touch and just said, "Look, he did. He put a time limit on it. Our pal didn't come through. So between us, we managed to um, come through, and uh, and that's how I became friends with Charles." Well, there we go. And that's, uh, what's that, 20-odd year? Um, twenty Well, 25-plus year, I yeah. reckon you guys were doing that. Yeah. But, yeah, I just needed to get uh, some clarification because uh, I've known Charles too long. So uh, I always need to get his stories uh, verified by somebody respectable in the road pack. <coughs> no, it, it's, you know, it was, it was this, uh, you know, Charles had a pretty good toolkit, you know, toolkit anybody would be happy with. But it was, you know, it's on a different scale of magnitude, you know. It was uh, it was designed for fixing uh, Land Rovers rather than uh, big machinery. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a good. Uh, you know, I was. It was funny when I was listening to that because I, I, I was there that day. I remember. I remember that Charles. I remember you know the Yorkshire Moors right on the top of uh, on the edge of the national park uh, in this quarry in the north of England. It was quite. That was quite a good job. When we made we made absolutely no money on it. In fact, it cost us both a bit of money to do the job. But I had the job. Had the initial job. Uh, the initial job was really just a sales um, invite for what we reckoned would be a better job. You know, they'd come looking for a rockfall net, and I'd looked at it and thought, "You don't want a rockfall net. You want to stabilise that bit up the top there, and you want to shift your plant from here over to there, and you want to spend the next fifty years quarrying that bit." And they kind of liked the idea of that. I think they just liked the idea that. Somebody could see it from their perspective, you know, turn a, a hundred grand rockfall netting job into, you know, a half million pound uh, retasking of a of a quarry. Yeah, but of course it, it didn't come to fruition. But you know, it um, it started a new relationship with uh, somebody I wouldn't have met otherwise. Definitely, yeah, good people to know, and that's uh, that's the thing that I love about the rope access uh, industry is meeting all of these different characters and the the thing that sort of links us all together is, uh, you know, swinging around on bits of rope and, uh, and following, as you said, a robust system. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I touched on it early on. It's, it's this uniformity 
And I say that to guys, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, you know, if you're down, you know, if you're a local guy down in Nigeria or, or Brazil or in Mexico or in China, you know, Australia, Europe, North America, wherever, you know, um, you might not understand the language, you might have a different colour of skin, um, but we could all rock on each other's sites and with the minimum of uh, reconfiguration, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've got a uh, I've got a reassessment coming up uh, next year, 2022, and I'm thinking about heading somewhere where I don't speak the language and get trained by somebody in a completely different language. Even though I understand the systems, I know what needs to be done, but I think it'll be an interesting thing to just be there and be like candidates have been on assessments I've done or courses that I've run where they don't speak the language and you have to rely on, you know, all of the all of the other skills that we have to learn. So, yeah, I think that'll be a fun yeah, one. Yeah, I can remember, uh, you know, somebody else that was mentioned in that, uh, podcast she did with Charles was was Carrie, you know. I can, rem- I can remember being, she was, uh, she'd been accepted, she'd done the assessor's course, she had to do some uh, um, some shadow assessments, so she did an assessment, shadow assessment with me um, at Tracks Dubai um, for James. And uh, one of the questions she had, how do you assess when you, you, you don't really, but the guys have only got real basic English? And I said, well, observational skills that come in you know I have to ask them to buddy check each other no I'm standing here watching they're buddy checking each other you know all of a sudden you know where we would use verbal prompts and rely on verbal communication um, quite often when language changes you've got to kind of apply a different skill set and that's observation I think one of the things we mistakes we make as uh, largely monoglot English speakers for the best part I mean I've got a little bit of language, a little bit Gaelic, a, a little bit of Arabic, you know, a little bit of Spanish, a little less French, but I spent more time in France, so I understand a bit more French, a little German that I picked up in school, but I'm not really a, a linguist, um, but I've learned other communication skills. I think we're we're quite guilty of rattling away in English and assuming that because everybody reckons that they speak English, that they understand our brand of English, which is quite often... Uh, not the case <laughs> so i think that's communications and just being really sure of um of what's happening where verbal prompts uh, are limited where you the real benefits come from employing other senses you know actually visually observing that things are being done and just allowing the trainers to um speak to them in the local language and at the end of the day People have said to me, yeah, but you could be telling the guy how to do it. But end of the day, the guy, the guy is the guy who's on the rope and he's got to do it himself. And a level one in the real world would be getting uh, direct, some direct supervision and a bit of advice, but it's only the guy on the rope that can interact with the equipment. So you go, if there's any weaknesses there, if they're not up to speed, you know, that's going to come forward pretty quickly. Definitely, definitely. Well, I think that sort of nicely wraps that one up, uh, Willie. Um, once again, thanks for taking the time to share your story with the, the highs and the lows and how it's all sort of panned out over the last 30-something-odd years. Um, it's been a pleasure to sit down with you. Um, been a far too long between drinks for us too, I believe, but <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure that will happen at some stage. Yeah, something I look forward to getting together. We're, we're next up a big physical auditors meeting, although I do think that the pandemic has um, inured us all, softened us up for Zoom. And uh, Yeah, I think yeah. so. 
So who knows? But hopefully at some point in the future we'll, we'll have a physical meeting. We can all get together and shoot, shoot the, the breeze and argue the toss in the bar. Really enjoy that's, that networking opportunity and good to catch up with people. As it has been today, good to catch up with yourself, Liam. Thanks very much. Thank you, Will. Thanks for that. You stay safe. You too, man. Well, thanks again, Willie. That was awesome having a sit down and uh, running through your journey through Rope Access, how it all started and uh, and where it took you and uh, travelling around the world, um, getting involved with this thing called Arata, which you weren't too sure about at the beginning, and then working your way through the system uh, to level three and then assessor, auditor. Um, yeah, really good to chat with you. As always, guys, um, if you could share... Uh, the podcast with your friends that'd be amazing press the appropriate buttons to subscribe we're going live every tuesday sydney time down in australia find us on facebook follow us like us all of that good stuff that'd be amazing check out our website ratac.net that'd be great but anyway for now stay safe i'll see you soon cheers <laughs>